welcome back, everybody. We find ourselves in the undertow once more to discuss the momentous happenings of Criminal Number 12, uh, the conclusion, for now, of, of the current arc of Criminal. Um, this is Robert Watson here in Columbia, Missouri, and on the other end of the line, I have my uh, partner in crime, Mr. Bubba Beasley. How you doing? Yeah, we're, we're uh, six feet apart today, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the yeah the the world is is you know there's a lot of craziness happening and it's disrupted everybody's lives you know and and we're in the same boat but we are happy to uh, you know be back in the undertow digitally and uh, talking comics and again this is I I think this is as good a time as any to kind of dive into criminal and you know podcasts are something that actually isn't affected too much by by the latest coronavirus. Um, disruptions. Yeah, we're um, what talk, talking mature readers, comic books, and uh, over adult beverages. Is that about right? You know that is uh, that's where we find ourselves this evening, and um, I have to say that uh, I'm happy on both fronts. I am drinking a Fat Tire Amber Ale, uh, brewed in Colorado by New Belgium. Um, had re- revisited that beer after many years of not drinking it, and uh, you know I was very happy with uh, it. Was just as good as I remembered it. Nice, and I, I have what has become my usual, except maybe you know during the very middle of summer where it's just too damn hot to drink anything else. When you know you go to apple cider, that sort of thing, is a uh, a pint of uh, Guinness Draft. Well, a virtual toast to you, Bubba, so, and to you, and, and to all our all our listeners. I I do hope everybody's doing well. I know um, Robert and I we talked offline. You know, uh, uh, before we started recording about, you know, the economic impacts of everything and, and you know, uh, um, both of us, we're, we're going through through our own stuff uh, personally, um, in, you know, if it's not directly caused by by the, the, the quarantines and the, the economic shutdowns and that sort of thing. It certainly has been complicated by it. And, um, yeah, we, we hope our listeners can can take a few minutes uh, away from the real world and in, and enjoy some uh, some you know breaking and entering some uh, first degree murder you know the the good stuff yeah <laughs> yeah and it does it seems it's wild it seems like an eternity since uh, criminal number twelve came out and it has been a little bit you know it took us a little while to get our schedules coordinated it really hasn't been out that long but you know so much has happened in the world since then that of course that seems like an eternity ago but. Um, again, and the yeah, the comics community is disrupted along with everything else. I know my local shop is is shut down. Um, but anyway, we are here. We have a great issue of comics to talk about. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll be diving into to Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, uh, Criminal Number Twelve. Uh, again, you can find our episodes under toe.podbean.com. You can find us on iTunes. And uh, we really appreciate it when listeners reach out to us. So please send us an email, undertowpodcast at gmail.com. Um, we're also semi-active on Twitter, at undertowpodcast. And then Bubba also has a great criminal blog exclusively dedicated to the world of Brubaker and Phillips. And I would like to uh, just uh, kind of up front give a shout out to to a lot of our listeners. You know, we we had a, a kind of a winter hiatus um, where we didn't do a new episode for a while, but we came back with episode number thirty six. Um, I think that what that came out in January, I believe, and very end of January. A, yep. Yeah, we had a big response from our listeners. A lot of a lot of people reached out. Um, you know, via emails or Twitter messages. 
Um, we got news items that some listeners gave us heads up about. Um, they they kind of linked us in on some different books that were coming out that they stumbled upon links to. Um, we got some recommendations for future episodes that were really interesting. So, you know, we heard from people throughout the U.S. and Europe. And so, you know, that was kind of uh, that was gratifying for sure. So we do appreciate that to uh, to know that everybody's out there listening and, you know, is enjoying the podcast and kind of what we're bringing to the table. So, um, yeah, we're happy to be back and doing that again. And we we hope to to you know, continue that, that build on that momentum. Yeah. And, um, and actually we, we hope to build on that a little bit tonight with, uh, not just with, with recommendations coming in. We also get the occasional, um, news item, you know, we, we, it's, it's a collaborative process, not just between Robert and myself, but between, uh, um, us two hosts and, and the listeners got a heads up, um, just tonight. So just in time for recording, it's uh, a Sunday night, March 29th, uh, uh, as as we're recording, and got a uh, a direct message just a few hours ago um, for a news item that we'll uh, wrap up the news with. So. Yeah, let's go ahead and transition into news, Bubba. Before we dive into issue number 12, I know uh, you know the the Brubaker and Phillips world is you know like I said, we're kind of in between projects right now that this current version of Criminal has wrapped. Um, we know Pulp is on the horizon, and uh, that's. I think that's set for May 27th release date, assuming that's not changed due to kind of the, all of these developments happening globally. But, but yeah, looking forward to Pulp. Um, and Jacob Phillips has a, has a comic on the horizon, too, that was previewed in this issue. So go ahead, and I'll hand things off to you, and you can kind of uh, get the listeners up to speed on all of these news items over the last couple of months. Absolutely, Robert. And you're, you're right. Uh, Pulp is uh, announced or, or solicited, scheduled, for a May 27th release date, um, our first bit of news is uh, from the, uh, the the monthly solicitations. So the advance views released by Image Comics for um, for your local retailers to go through and, and figure out you know, as new stuff come out come out comes out, what are they going to order? How much are they going to order? You know for for uh, for their uh, for their customers, and um, the uh, front cover of the little magazine of the May 2020 solicitations uh, features pulp uh, as you know in in broad uh, colors basically a, a preview image uh, from Sean Phillips uh, described as one of the most anticipated graphic novels of the year pulp multiple Eisner award-winning powerhouse Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips team up for a standalone story part violent thriller part gunslinging Western out this May from image comics and it's yeah scheduled to come out May 27th, solicited for uh, 72 pages, um, with a 17 dollar uh, American dollar uh, uh, cover price, and um, we've already begun to see a little bit of uh, preview art in a uh, newsletter from Ed Brubaker that Ed sent out uh, middle of March, and a little bit of preview art, a, little, a few recommendations, and you know basically just a, uh, a broadcast. Um, from from his neck of the woods uh, to all his fans during during all this uh, uh, economic and, and medical disruption, um, but also in the May solicitations was um, the the announcement for that Texas Blood, uh, the the first project where comic book where uh, Sean Phillips' son uh, Jacob, the uh, the colorist for. Um, uh, for much of, uh, or, or for the, the entire criminal run, start going back to uh, the, the criminal book 
Uh, my heroes have always been junkies. This is his uh, first work as the primary artist, and the solicitation confirmed that it's an ongoing series, not merely a, a one-shot or, or a mini-series. Um, it's also due for release the same day, um, May 27th, $4 cover price. And the most interesting thing, I think, from that, that first solicitation is that there's a variant cover uh, by Sean Phillips that – I don't know. I, 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 if, depending on how much you want to read into that variant cover, it suggests that there's more to, to this uh, story than just you know, your typical um, crime western set in the, uh, the, the arid south, southwestern United States. That variant cover – is oh for lack of a better description it's 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 it looks like a zombie or a uh, or a skeleton yeah he's, yeah he's tapping into the old marvel zombies skill set for this one yeah guy with a skull holding a shotgun this very eerie effect of either sunrise or sundown where um the very top of his head and the very top of the gun and the very top of the mountains in the background are are lit by the sun but nothing else and then, yeah, this phosphorescent glow uh, of the man's uh, respiratory system and digestive system is his his abdomen. And yeah, I I, I wonder if that does hint at um, at a horror element or a supernatural element, you know, something that has not been announced um, about the story. So, and I also uh, saw in this. Um I also saw in this Nerdist article about that Texas blood, this review that um, Sean is also, it says he has designed the issue, Sean Phillips has too, and I don't know if that's just the single issue or if he's laying out the design for the whole book, but at least he is playing a part in that as well, so that's interesting. His graphic design background where, yeah, he does the layouts for all of the Brubaker and Phillips works, both the single issues and and the, the collections. You know the the soft covers and the the deluxe hard covers, and it sounds like he's doing the same thing at least for this first issue for that Texas Blood you sent. And then the um, uh, June uh, solicitations came out. I was hoping there'd be an advanced solicit solicitation for um, uh, Cruel Summer, something that we uh, uh, for the collection that we've seen listed on Amazon that we I believe we mentioned um, in the last episode, and I'll be circling around to it at the end of this this little. Uh, news digest this news summary but um nothing there the only thing listed in the june solicitations is the second issue of that texas blood which is listed as the first five-part story arc uh or the first issue of the first five-part story arc so so a brother's conscience part one which tells me that that first issue is a standalone story maybe maybe that standalone story adapts the uh, the screenplay that the writer Chris Condon had put together, I think, for a short film. So maybe it's it's. But if uh, at any rate, um, a one shot would give you a very give readers a very clear idea of you know what they're in for and and be very satisfying out out of the gate, uh, which is one of the things I appreciated with the with the return of Criminal last year, and then um, you know that Texas Blood number two. Um, again, there's something of a horror vibe on, on the standard cover for this one. The, um, the, the, the Jacob Phillips, uh, cover with, um, Duncan, the, the Fagred, 
Fagredo, and I, I knew I was going to foul up his name, Duncan Fagredo doing the uh, variant cover. With the standard cover for issue two, it's you know these un, this unseen person, hands reaching out um, towards somebody looking at a, at a road sign, a blood-covered uh, road sign. So I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm very curious about what what this uh, series is going to be. So. Yeah, and the uh, the the preview in the in the back of issue number twelve is pretty short, so it's hard to get a good read on. I think the vibe of the book just from that. What is it like two or three page um, kind of preview at the end of Criminal Number Twelve? Pretty yeah. small sample size. Almost. Uh, all, uh, I don't think it's too far away from the sort of uh, the the trailers. Trailer. That yeah, I Becker agree. That's what I thought. Yeah. Of. Yep, and I did just see that on uh, March nineteenth, Median dot com posted an interview uh, with the uh, the creators of that Texas Blood. So both of them, writer Chris Condon and artist Jacob Phillips. But I haven't gotten uh, a chance to dig into that. So so don't know if there's more info there. Um, but that's basically the side Phillip project for Jacob Phillips. Um, uh, the side project for for the primary artist for Criminal for for uh, Sean Phillips it has been um, covers for home video releases, DVDs and Blu-rays, uh, both for Arrow Films in the UK and more um, prominently, and I would also say more prestigiously, um, or prestigiously, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, the Criterion Collection. And the big news since our last episode is um, that. Uh, Sean Phillips has done the cover art uh, for the cry for the Criterion Collection release, and this is, I believe, a, a new release of an exi- you know the, uh, of a movie that has been around, you know, been in home video for forever. The Great Escape, the um, the Steve McQueen uh, classic, you know, World War II prisoner of war um, uh, escape movie. And that movie is at least scheduled to be released May 12th. And in the meantime, uh, on February 19th, the site Bleeding Cool posted a uh, gallery of, uh, of all of Sean Phillips' work for Criterion with a couple of, a couple of um, additional bits of artwork in addition to the, the, the cover art. And I personally, I've, I ha- haven't gotten all of, Sean, of the uh, Criterion uh, releases with Sean Philip covers, but I've gotten a good number of, the, of them, and they have all been extraordinarily satisfying. Great Escape is worth getting on its own, you know, Sean Phillips cover or not, but those they, they, the releases have helped me uh, discover um, uh, the sweet smell of success and. Um, Come back to, to uh, Twelve Angry Men, and yeah, so so another feather in uh, Sean Phillips' cap. And um, the uh, third news item is uh, another thing that Sean Phillips has been doing is uh, uh, on uh, social media on Twitter. Uh, he has this uh, link, his um, uh, pinned tweet at the top of his feed starts basically a look back at his uh, career. This being the fortieth year. Um, he's been in comics, so 40 years of comics. So for, for every day since, he posts, has been posting four images, uh, samples of artwork that he, that he did for that year, much of which uh, has already been collected um, in the hardcover book, uh, the, the Art of Sean Phillips. So. And then uh, finally, 
uh, final news, uh, circling back uh, to Criminal. We had mentioned, I believe, uh, last episode, the uh, Cruel Summer hardcover that's listed in Amazon, uh, expected June 23rd, collecting the entire Cruel Summer arc, so issues 5, 5 through 12, but also including issue number 1, that kind of that, – that prologue. Um, well, on, on uh, Twitter just tonight, got a, uh, a heads up, a direct message from uh, one of our listeners, James Joshua Hall, that Amazon just listed um, the Criminal Volume 8 trade paperback uh, due at the end of the year, due December 29th, Three Sharp Knocks. And this would be collecting uh, issues one through four, which, which would include – that uh, prologue, looking forward to Cruel Summer, the two issues uh, that comprise Bad Weekend, though, though I'm not sure if, if that would just be the, the, the standard length or, or any of the additional pages. And that, that fourth one is uh, Orphans, basically a look backwards for, at, at the effects of the, uh, the Cruel Summer arc. The way Amazon, this Amazon listing has, uh, introduces it is the debut appearance of one of the most important characters in criminal history, Ricky Lawless, in three heartbreaking tales of crime and family. And Ricky does, does appear in all three, um, though uh, uh, most prominently in the, uh, the third story in issue number four, Orphans. Um, it's all intriguing stuff. Uh, I, I know Amazon doesn't post this stuff, these sorts of listings in advance based on absolutely nothing, and they've they've paced, posted listings that turn out to be more or less right right on in terms of what what is ultimately announced. But yeah, um, possibly two collections um, this year, uh, in addition to, to hints of a uh, from from Sean Phillips that the uh, deluxe hardcover. Cover the deluxe edition may be coming back in print, but uh, two editions with a little bit of overlap, and yeah, uh, I, I, nothing has been officially announced either from Image Comics or from uh, from the creators, from Brubaker or, or Phillips. So something to keep your head keep keep an eye out for. Well, we've got a pretty good rundown there, I think, on the news, so we can we'll we'll shift gears here a little bit and move into talking about issue number twelve specifically. Um, like I said, it has been out for, for several weeks now, but it does, you know, it's the, the cruel summer finale and the finale of the current monthly arc of Criminal, although Ed and Sean have been reassuring readers that they will definitely return to the Criminal universe in the future. Um, and we had, you know, we had very little doubt of that as well, but it is kind of the the, the, the wrap-up for now of this current monthly um, version of Criminal. Um, so obviously there will be there will be spoilers from here on out as we kind of dive into the issue, and I'm sure that you know virtually everyone has read it at this point that that wants to read it. So of course the the first thing that comes to mind when I'm thinking of issue number twelve is the striking cover of of Teague Lawless shot and bleeding from the head over a, a full black panel, um, and and he's you know upside down when you're holding the book upright, but it's it's a quite striking cover. And the issue is entitled "Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye," um, which I'm sure a lot of uh, a lot of readers uh, also kind of dove into that title. But it is a 1950 film noir uh, based on a novel of the same name, starring James Cagney and directed by Gordon Douglas. Uh, the film, interesting note: the film was banned in Ohio as a sordid, sadistic presentation of brutality and an extreme presentation of crime with explicit steps and commission. Um, so obviously that's that's right up our alley around here. Highly recommended then. Great. 
<laughs> and the issue opens immediately where issue number 11 ended. So Teague is, is still alive and is coming to after being shot by Faraday. And he can hear Jane screaming in the distance, but he can't figure out why he's not dead. Um, he's he's wearing a bulletproof vest, and and Faraday actually shot him with rock salt instead of a, a standard and more deadly shotgun shell. Um, so that kind of mystery is is resolved rather quickly. With you know, we we saw Teague shot with a shotgun, but he's obviously still alive. And so, um, kind of you know, my I will admit my shotgun knowledge is extremely limited, uh, but I did some very minor research around around shotgun shells and rock salt. Same here. Yeah. And, what uh, what did you find out? Well, uh, you know, from this site called Wikipedia, I figured out that uh, it, it talks about, you know, a shotgun shell is a self-contained cartridge often loaded with multiple metallic shot, you know, BBs, which are, are small spherical projectiles. Um, and it said that uh, an old recipe for a non-lethal round is to load shotguns with rock salt, which could inflict very painful but rarely deadly wounds when fired and was popular for repelling intruders. And the only thing that I knew about uh, rock salt in relation to a shotgun comes from, there's an old bluegrass song called Rock Salt Nails that uh, I heard Willie Watson does a, does a really great contemporary version of this song, but I think Flat and Scruggs made it famous. And I looked it up, their version came out in 1965, but um, essentially that's what they're talking about too, is, is a shotgun shell full of rock salt and nails. And that was the, the extent of my knowledge, but then I, I backed it up with a quick wikipedia visit so yeah um, for my part i did a little research and yeah rock salt um rock rock salt shotgun shells are used for less than lethal force um and due to the lightweight of the shot materials should be used at distances of um basically between 20 and 50 yards uh quote perfect for home defense or animal animal control where you are looking for less than lethal force and it sounds like it was used in an episode of the old uh, TV western, The Rifleman, uh, where the, the hero, Lucas McCain, um, shot some bad guys with a load of rock salt, again, non-lethally. And then the, the other big cultural reference in terms of, of, of use in, in narrative fiction, um, uh, uh, Kill Bill. Uh, Beatrix uh, survives uh, shot, being shot in the chest uh, through uh, – uh, be, uh, from being shot with two barrels full of rock salt, not regular uh, uh, regular shotgun uh, shot. So, oh, I forgot that that popped up in Kill Bill as well. Yep. So, and I and, and I did I, and I that I'm not a huge Tarantino fan in terms of of watching his his films religiously either, and that had slipped my mind. And yeah, it was an interesting thing to to look up. Um, but I think yeah, I. I I think this scene establishes that, you know, whether you do any research aside or not, it makes clear that Teague survived that encounter, which which was kind of necessary because if you knew where it was going, you knew that it wasn't Faraday who was the killer. Uh, you knew that, that somehow Teague survived that cliffhanger at the end of issue 11, but did not – but very clearly from, from, you know, issue one, from the prologue. You know, from the solicitations, very clear that he wasn't going to survive the story itself. So, you know, how does he get out of that cliffhanger, and then how does he end up getting killed? You know, that that's that was the big mystery coming into this issue. Um, this issue resolves the question of how he survives. He's he's shot 
with a non-lethal round of rock salt. Um, and, and on top of that, you know, he's, he's wearing a bulletproof vest. Um, but yeah, even with, it says in the narration, even with his vest on the, um, the, the shot from that range should have, should have blown him in half. So, so it answers very clearly. You don't have to do any Wikipedia research, that sort of thing. But it then raises the, another question, which Teague Lawless is going to come back to when things settle down is, is why, (laughs) um, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 his second thought in the very beginning of the issue, why am I not dead? <laughs> then in the narration, you know, second page, why the hell is he not dead? Why did Faraday use uh, non-lethal force? And we'll get an answer to that um, later in the story. Yeah, and I mean, just to kind of dovetail off that too, is that we, we see a definite shift in Faraday, I think, in this issue than we've seen... I mean, he was headed in this kind of direction in the last the last time we saw him when he was on the hunt for Jane. But um, you know, at the beginning, at the beginning when we were first introduced to the character, like he seemed like a fairly level headed, um, level headed gentleman. But he's completely become, you know, by by this issue, he's just completely fixated on Jane to the point where he's just got this crazed look in his eye. The you know the entire scene that he's in. Um, and it's just, you know, he has this singular focus in life and really can't, you know, think, think rationally about anything else. I think that much is pretty obvious. And so he, you know, we, he forces Jane to go with him in the car. And then uh, Tommy Patterson pulls up. Teague jumps in the car with Tommy because, again, if you remember, they were – obviously they just got done. This was their rendezvous point. So that's why Tommy is showing up is the – you know, they've just – pulled off their heist and this was part of the plan but anyway Tommy pulls up so Teague jumps in the car with him to follow Faraday and Jane and you know Jane I think there were, I had a lot of questions about Jane you know that I didn't necessarily feel were answered in this issue um, you know she I kind of see her as she essentially becomes the opposite of a femme fatale in this in this issue which um, I think she was somewhat presented as a femme fatale when she was in earlier issues of this arc. Um, but I just, I question a lot because I felt like the bulk of the time during this, this arc with Jane, she seemed to have some kind of ulterior motives um, and seemed to have a plan that she was putting in place. She would kind of drop these little tidbits in her narration about like, you know, she was talking to Ricky and she, you know, he's sorry, he's just not part of my plan. And she had kind of laid all this out, and I felt like she had a whole plan behind the scenes that Teague wasn't aware of, but I don't necessarily feel like that was answered in this issue. Um, so I, I found I found myself wanting to know more about her and her motivations in this partnership with Teague. And so I don't necessarily think all the answers are there, but there does seem to be a shift in her where, where she legitimately realizes that she cares about Teague, and I don't really feel like that was the case earlier. Um, and so I, you know, I always bought that Teague genuinely loved her, but I didn't really think she felt the same way. And she mentions in this issue that, that she was surprised how much she cared when she saw that Teague had been shot and she assumes that he's dead. Um, she says, uh, or the narration says Jane hadn't realized she actually cared until she saw him lying there. Yeah. Um, I think I, from my point of view, I, I think even if there wasn't some sort of, uh, of, complex plan that we don't know about there was certainly a a more um explo- exploitive 
uh, um, rationale from you know motivation from from her point of view. It, yeah, she was playing Teague to a certain yeah, you know to play, an extent. That's the impression I got. Playing Teague to get the kind of lifestyle that she wanted um, to continue running from what from you know life. Yeah, and so I guess I I had assumed before I knew that this was going to wrap up with issue twelve. I, I thought that that kind of whatever her ultimate master plan was with Teague and where she thought, what her end game was, I thought maybe there was some element of that that we didn't know or that would be revealed her motivations behind this. Um, and maybe it was as simple as that. You know, maybe it was just like, hey, this is this is how I, you know, essentially support myself and, and live the lifestyle I want, you know, y- using these people at my disposal. But, in you know, I thought that maybe there was something more behind it, but we don't really get those answers with Jane. So I did feel myself wanting to know a little bit more about her. But um, regardless, you know, like I said, Faraday has just went off the rails. Um, he has this obsession with saving Jane. You know, he keeps talking about saving her. Um, he has handcuffed one of her hands to his passenger side car door and just went totally off the rails. And, uh, you know, Jane senses this, knows that this isn't going to end well. So she punches Faraday with her free hand, starts struggling to try and get loose. Um, Teague and Tommy are following behind in a car and can see the, the car swerving in front of them as the two struggle and fight. And then I really wanted to call attention to from from an art perspective, just those the five panels in the in issue number twelve that show the car wreck. I thought were were truly you know kind of a master class in sequential storytelling. There's no dialogue at all for for three full pages, I think. And um, the full page image of the money from the heist flying through the air, I thought was a really powerful image by by Sean Phillips. And that image to me really hammered home the uh, disconnect between what Teague thought he cared about, which was, you know, money and the heist that they've just gone through versus what he really cared about when he sees that, you know, Jane is dying in this car wreck in front of him. So I thought that that kind of really just drove that message home in kind of a heartbreaking way. And it's, it's a really great use, not only of sequential storytelling, but um, minimalistic. There was there's no sound effects, no right. narration, no dialogue, um, nothing graphic, but very very brutal. Yeah, no, it hit home for sure. Um, and then that you know all we all we really see after the crash is uh, Jane's red coat through the broken car window and kind of a glimpse of blonde hair, but it, it's not graphic. You really don't get a good. There's really no you know kind of clear picture. I mean, we know what's happened. Um, Teague obviously knows what's happened. He's just witnessed the whole thing, but there's no, you know, and this, this, you know, Ed and Sean definitely don't shy away from brutality, but this is just a different way that they've presented it. And we don't really get a a clear look at it. I remember even when I first read it thinking, you know, is she truly dead? You know, you just don't get a real sense of, of closure. It was, there was kind of some, you know, ambiguity when, when it, when it happened. And that part, you know, that ends kind of the, the first half of the comic, I think, and then there's a, there's a big shift. We get the, the time jump um, where we get the caption that says a few weeks later. And we see that, you know, Jane's death, not surprisingly, has definitely taken its toll on Teague. Um, and, you know, his haggard appearance confirms it. And this is a guy who's, you know, he's a pro at looking haggard, but he looks even more haggard than normal. Um, and so uh, we see that he's... He's at a barbecue with friends, um, but it's it's quite obvious that neither Teague nor Ricky are really enjoying themselves. You know, obviously they are still shaken up about the events that have happened a few weeks prior. 
we find out that the heist itself is being blamed on Faraday and Jane, um, who, who both died in the car crash. And Ricky is, is racked with guilt because at this point we find out that he's the one that actually sold out Teague uh, and tipped off Faraday, which is kind of what Bubba was alluding to earlier with you know the, the non-lethal shot. Oh, and before before we get to um, Ricky following Teague, um, you know there you know, on those few pages of uh, of Teague, just not really simmering, just just almost lost. I think one of the things that that's really effective about the scene, you know, even if you didn't notice it, even if you didn't notice it consciously, I think you maybe picked up on it consciously, is that like you said, Teague always looks rough. He also always, you know, brooding and smoking, you know, from the very first time we see him in that 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 um was it Wolf Among Wolves in the um Dead in the Dying arc. You know, that that triptych of uh three interlocking standalone stories is that he gets home uh from Vietnam and he's standing on on his back deck uh smoking. And we see him very early on in this arc, standing in the um, in the luxury hotel balcony, smoking. And every time we see him brooding, you know, he's not only smoking, but he's standing. He's uh, standing very stoically, very powerfully, kind of authoritatively. And, yeah, and here he's he's sitting at a picnic table. He's a broken man, and the fact that he's sitting, and that that I would say that this splash page, you know, kind of a contrast, the the sp- splash page portrait of Teague smoking, uh, as opposed to the splash page of the the almost um, abstract, you know, uh, uh, hundred dollar bills and twenties, you know, flying in the air over the traffic light, um, you know, that one, you know, black background, abstract capturing a moment in action this one being you know very light background being a a, a, a portrait uh, of a human being with the narration and capturing not just a moment but that that train of thought i think that that one page of of a broken teague lawless smoking smoking is just as effective as the splash page of the the money in the traffic light of of the moment where where he broke the moments that broke him yeah it's you know you can just tell that the guy's got no fight left in him at this point you know he's it's 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 out of him whatever that whatever that edge was that he's had in him before is gone and yeah so once the the comic kind of confirms that ricky in a sense you know put these put these events into motion by uh you know making a deal with faraday uh, again, Ricky is obviously, you know, racked with guilt himself because, you know, he sees what, what what has happened as a result of his actions. And so he he confronts Teague inside the house to confess his role um, in Jane getting killed and it being all his fault. You know, Leo is kind of tuned into something is off and something is going on and, and knows something is up and follows Ricky into the house. And there was another little interesting effect with the art here when the narration says Leo feels the house shift. Um, and the way that Sean Phillips kind of you know reflects this is that he 
there's several shots of the house where everything is just out of kilter just a bit. You know, he's going in the door, and while everything's kind of diagonal, and you get that canted frame that kind of gives that tension to it. Which you never um, see in the series. Yeah. Right. And it jumps out at you because of that, too. And, I mean, we're used to the – I mean, we've talked about it a lot, the kind of, you know, almost militant grid-like pattern of, of criminal, the kind of – clean layout of the book and everything is is set on those rigid squares so i think that really kind of amplifies that effect when you see something that doesn't really match that that pattern that we're so used to and then the you know the a very simple but powerful line from ed where it says it's too late for all of them um, which again is kind of one of those overarching thesis statements of this whole series i think um and so, you know, Leo Leo picks up the revolver, and this is when, you know, this moment starts to take shape that we've known about since way back when, when Criminal started, um, that we knew Leo had a, had, a, had a large, you know, part to play in this death of Teague Lawless. Um, so we see Leo pick up the revolver. He shoots Teague in the head to stop him from strangling Ricky um, because Teague has now attacked his son, you know, to uh, after finding out Ricky's role in this. Um and then there's another, you know, the art does this interesting reverse angle shift after Leo picks up the gun and points it at Teague that I that, that jumped out at me too, where the perspectives shift. And then the the other line I really wanted to call attention to, just to, to give a shout out to, uh, you know, this is a great Brubaker line. Um, he says, this won't save Ricky, not really. It'll just be another thing that kills him slowly. And again, man, I thought, what a powerhouse that is. And, and the fact that... that crossing that line you know from what was established uh from from uh for leo previously that when he crosses that line from trying to follow all the rules into to um criminality and nihilism and you know uh, uh um, frankly what sociopathy is that he becomes you know, instead of revved up, instead of everything becoming a blur, everything slows down. He becomes hyper rational. He sees everything. In this case, he sees the consequences of what's going to happen, and he sees that the consequences aren't good. That they're not going. In the end, he isn't. Even though he is saving, um, uh, he is, he is saving Ricky's life here at the moment, and that does explain why why Ricky and and Leo. You know why? Why? Why Ricky? You know feels um, a uh, a loyalty and duty to Leo, even though he knows that that Leo killed his dad. Um, that he sees that that even though this moment doesn't doesn't save it doesn't isn't going to ultimately save him, he still pulls the trigger, and then all hell breaks loose. Yeah, and what a tragedy just for. You know, for Leo and and his father, Tommy Patterson, you know, that, I mean, legitimately, Leo is helping his friend in a time of need and and is reacting to these events that, you know, happened completely outside what he knew about. But it's just, you know, and it sets his life in a tailspin, obviously. And we know his his father ends up in prison, takes the fall for this. Dies in Um, prison. Killed in prison. Killed in prison. Yeah, it's just a – it couldn't be more tragic, I don't think, for the Pattersons. Again, I know – this is ultimately Teague dying, um, but that relationship between Teague and Ricky obviously already felt like it was fractured to a point where you know there was no going back. Like those, those two, you know, Teague was broken. Um, the two obviously had a contentious relationship, so it's like I feel like that's obviously a tragedy too. But the real tragedy lies in I feel like Leo and Tommy Patterson 
um, and kind of how these events set things on their on their path. Um, that is really just yeah, pretty brutal and pretty sad. And and the, the you know there's just basically two pages of this death um, in you know full bloody display at this point. Really, it couldn't be more graphic in these two these two pages, kind of at the climax of this story. That just hammer that home. I think just the whole tragic aspect of this of of these whole events, and we don't see, um, you know, we we find out in kind of short fashion, obviously, that Tommy takes the fall um, once he realizes what's happened. He he makes Izzy get the boys out of the house, Izzy Kurtz, um, so that he can basically kind of take the fall for his son, um, and then we don't see hardly any fallout after the murder. Um, we just kind of get this one last page where they, you know, they, they call out, this is the last memory of the summer of 88, um, which I believe was the original title for this arc, the summer of 88. Um, and just, you know, and kind of do this, we, we get back full circle to where criminal, criminal started way back, way back with coward and in a really satisfying way. Um, I thought just to kind of tie that back to that very first arc, um, you know, is really, you know, takes some skill and takes some finesse, but they really delivered, I think, in this issue. Yeah. And it, and it, and it, so it's, that's one thing that makes it very hard to say, you know, to say rank arcs or rank issues, to evaluate this issue on its own because it doesn't stand on its own. It's not only the conclusion to this one arc, it, it's payoff to so much that came before it, going all the way back, literally at this point, what, 14 years. Right. To 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 coward, yeah. And I don't and, have and not only to to the arc of coward, but but to the the um, that teaser that that three or four page teaser where it where the 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 big punchline, the big uh, uh, cliffhanger is is that Leo thought to be the coward, you know what he's scared of is what's inside himself, you know what's inside me while he's holding a gun directly, you know at the reader. And we see we see that side of him in a in a way you know far more graphic than we did um, in that arc, and um, far more graphic than we typically see violence in this in the series. And it's a it's a hell of a payoff, yeah. Yeah, and I again I don't have the numbers to back this up, but I think it's probably a safe bet to say, you know, based on the nature of of. Ed and Sean's partnership, you, I, one would assume that the vast majority of, I would assume the vast majority of people reading this this issue or this series monthly have read most of their most of their previous criminal arcs. Again, I don't know if that's true, um, but I just feel like the the storytelling lends itself well. I'm sure they're writing these in the sense knowing that yeah they would work as a standalone you know a standalone arc of a comic if somebody's just picking it up monthly, but I would guess that a, a way higher percentage of readers that are reading this current arc have read the bulk of these previous th- this this previous partnerships work. I would guess than a lot of other creators. And that the more that they have read, and the more closely that they've read, the more weight is added to this issue. And right. yeah, my um, my thought is that that you know you could quibble here and there, and I do have do have a couple things I could could list and probably will. But this was an extraordinarily satisfying conclusion, the single issue, and it was extraordinarily well constructed from from a scripting 
and from a, an art, uh, uh, artistic point of view in terms of as a comic book, not just as sequential images but sequential images on laid on the page. And yeah, uh, the, the quibbles, um, you had mentioned uh, the possibility that um, – that Jane had well, it was it was certainly clear that Jane was using uh, Teague, and it may you know there's a possibility that she, that her plans were even um, you know a couple moves ahead of what what Teague envisioned. Right. But then then one of the quibbles is is you know is that we don't I think completely find out what Faraday was doing uh, between between issue ten and issue twelve that. You know, he presumably was, but we don't get, we don't get confirmation. He presumably was responsible for you know security being on alert during that that heist in issue eleven at the uh, at the uh, pro wrestling event, the Saturday night big you know the WrestleMania type thing. Um, but then the question is, what what did he do? You know, how, to what do what did he know of the plan other than the safe house and the, the, the site? How did he tip them off? Uh, what was he hoping to accomplish by tipping them off? And the, the reason I ask that is um, the, the old line from, uh, from the, the great um, you know, uh, Robert De Niro action flick from the 90s, from like 97, I think. Ronan is, you know, let, let's stick with the plan. It's a good plan. You know, everybody wants to go – go to the party nobody wants to clean up the mess afterwards is that you know he seemed to be introducing a lot of chaos and it seemed to fall out his way that the right um people specifically uh uh teague and jane got to the safe house they still went to the safe house and they got there first and you know what what was what was faraday's plan and i don't think that was ever answered but it's also one of the things that that didn't need to be answered. It wasn't a deeply pressing question compared to the um, to really the family drama going on in this issue. You know, the, the 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 dynamics between father and son, and between friends, and yeah, but uh, between a man and you know, and lost love. Um, the the second quibble would be as graphic. As, um, as the aftermath uh, of Leo killing uh, Teague Lawless is, you know, we we didn't see just how bad that it that it got, you know, leading leading up to it. A lot was a, it, and it's 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 um, their usual approach of n- not being more explicit and more uh, graphic than need be. Of this comic compared to something like Sin City. Um, is extraordinarily understated. Um, I, you know, one quibble is maybe too understated in conveying, you know, that we, you know, we've already seen um, uh, uh, Teague and Ricky Lawless getting into to fist fights over uh, over Jane, uh, or because of Jane. We've already we already read in um, that. Uh, that that first issue, when uh, Ricky was just a kid, you know, stealing stealing from the pro wrestler to get his dad out of jail to get bail money, that that uh, Teague broke his arm over it. We've we've already seen the uh, established 
the violence in that relationship, I, I almost wish that we had seen more explicitly just how much that this was this was going over the line that it was absolutely the case and i think you know from from leo's reaction and from ricky looking at leo and from the expression of uh, of teague you know as he chokes his own son with one hand yeah you know, i think it's absolutely clear he's about to kill him He's just going to straight up murder his own son, but I do, you know, I, I do wonder if it could have been a little, just a tiny bit more effective if it had been a tiny more bit more explicit that this was crossing every line that 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 they had already approached and gotten near and and almost crossed up to this point. Um, and then the only other quibble would be. Um, you know the, the uh, that uh, splash page we've already talked about the uh, the scene of the uh, the dollar bills floating um, above the uh, the traffic light, you know the traffic light presumably just above that uh, that car accident the the fatal car accident. Those particular twenties uh, or hundreds are anachronistic. The 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 middle portrait is too big for money in the mid nineteen eighties. And that just I, – I, I, I remember what money looked like, and, and it's one of those things, you know, Sean Phillips, a, 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 an English or British author, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the uh, U.S. currency didn't look exactly like that in the mid-'80s. Yeah, no, I think those are, those are all good points, and it's – I think in this age of – we've talked about before this, this – you know, if you take the – kind of the Netflix or streaming television example of the current state of television where um, I feel like the pace of shows, you know, they they basically stretch out things and kind of just beat you over the head with every detail to kind of maximize the, you know, uh, a, a four-episode uh, four storyline turns into ten and there's just every detail is like, you know, kind of belabored and shown in great detail to kind of maximize the effect, which I think goes too far. And obviously I think it's a net, a net negative. But in this instance, they kind of went the other direction where we don't see it. You know, I felt like it was, there were, yeah, you know, big sections of this story that kind of could have could have used some more attention and it wouldn't have been belabored at all. It actually would have kind of added to the complexity of the story that I felt like, we didn't, you know, Faraday and Jane were both interested, very interesting characters that I found myself wanting to know more about, but we just didn't, we didn't get a lot of, I mean, they, it seemed like we were going to get a, a, a large perspective on kind of their goals and motivations, but we really didn't. And even the, the scene you talked about with where, um, Teague and Ricky, you know, at the end, basically where he's strangling him, you know, we see it from, from Leo's perspective. So right after, you know, Ricky confesses his role in this, and, you know, we know what's going to happen. We shift to Leo's perspective, then all we see is we come in on it after he's already strangling him. We don't see that in between, yep. um, which obviously that happened quickly, and it escalated quickly, but I think the conventional way would be to kind of really hone in on that moment and see the see the tension escalate, but we really don't. We kind of shift perspectives there. So it's a little bit of an unconventional way to tell the story. 
an unconventional way, a very dense way to tell the story, the, the exact opposite of decompression that you see in way too right. many comic books. Um, and very dense storytelling despite, what, four splash pages, despite a lot of panels that don't use a lot of narration because they don't need them. But yeah, something like just even a line uh, of narration, um, you know, that that from Ricky's point of view, that 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 his father had had, you know, beaten him up more times than he could count. But this was different, you know, that this that he wasn't going to make it. <laughs> he he wasn't going to to <laughs> he wasn't going to make it after past this particular fight. Yeah, right. I think would have possibly been helpful but then then the the construction of this issue so it sounds like we in both in for both of us we have the uh the the single issue comic book in front of us uh issue number 12 yeah um i would suggest our readers you know if, if you're listening along um listening on the road or you know at work that sort of thing Take a second uh, to dig up this issue and follow along and just, if you don't mind, uh, uh, look at this uh, broadly, is that every page tends to focus on one scene. For all this compression, it's not switching from scene to scene, page page by page, um, and it's even the case that the, the two pages, the, the, the facing pages, stay on one scene, tend to stay on one subject, and the narration tends to stay on one person. Um, and just a reminder, up to this point, this entire arc, every issue has focused on, almost every issue has focused on one character's perspective. Faraday in, fi- in issue five, Teague in six, Ricky in seven, Jane in eight, Leo in nine, Faraday and Ricky split the issue in 10, then back to Teague in 11, and then you have this this... Um, just explosive finale, and it's all it, over the place. It's all over the place. All of those people that I listed, almost all of them ha- have that focus in terms of that third person narration. It's third person narration from that one person's point of view, except for Faraday. There's no narration from Faraday's point of view. The be- the closest we get is is Jane's realization of who Faraday is, because at this point there's nothing more that we need to know about him. We know that that he's basically he's gone. He's crossed the line. He's over, he, he he's over the cliff mentally. Even before the, the even before the uh, fatal accident, he's mentally he's mentally already already <laughs> compromised. Gone. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, starting with that first page. You know, with with kiss tomorrow goodbye at the the front. So just going very quickly, that first page, then the the two pages beside it or after that. So one, two, and three. It's all from Teague's point of view. It's all him in the safe house recovering. Turn again. It's still Teague's point of view. He's left the house. He's getting picked up um, by Tommy, by Tommy Patterson, Leo's dad. The 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 very next page. Um, uh, six and seven, and then eight and nine. It's it's we have shifted focus. Not only you know action wise, we see Jane and Faraday. We have shifted narration wise. It's third person narration. No, but none of these narration boxes are. I did this. I thought that. I was doing that. But the the focus is clearly from from Jane's point of view. Jane in the car. 
um, for pages um, six and seven, and then again eight and nine, with the exception of just three very quick panels from from uh, Tracy's point of or uh, from Teague's point of view. You know, following behind. You know, half a block back, Teague sees the car swerve. You know, for a moment, he, it gives him hope. That's the only time we break away from from the tragedy that we're going to see. That tragedy is in page pages ten and eleven. The the, the silent crash. 12 and 13, almost completely silent. The narration is still silent. It's still letting, forcing us to, to, to take the visuals in, to force us to take it in just, uh, just as, as Tiga is taking it in. Um, his brain has stopped thinking, and, and very similarly, the narration is just, you know, has nothing to add. And then um, we have, have, you know, the few weeks later, the pages 14, 15, and then again, 16, 17, again, it's Teague's narration. Again, it's the one scene, sitting and smoking, and then and, and he walks in. 18 and 19, we switch to Ricky. It's from Ricky's perspective, and he's following, uh, following, following um, Teague into the house after, after him. 20 to 21 continues with Ricky um, for a page and a half, and then we get, we get Leo's narration you know not not first person again third person but from his perspective we get that skewed kind of what what did you say the the, the cantering of the camera um and and we stick with leo there for the rest of page 21 all of 22 all of 23 and then the very beginning of of 24 again you know he leo pulls the trigger anyway the whole world explodes and then the narration cuts out again because again it's forcing you to 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 deal with with the the literal enormity of the situation and he's just frozen there just like Ricky's frozen there and again the the narration brings us out of it and i think it's interesting in both cases both after the car wreck and after the the um the, uh, the fatal shooting it's Leo's dad. It's Tommy Patterson, who's you know the voice of calm reason, getting the person out of the bad situation that he finds himself in, getting him out of out of the scene of the the, the literal uh, scene of the crime, and then that final page, um, you know, we we basically it's 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 doubled, where where it's from the point of view of both. You know, this is the last memory. Ricky and Leo have from the summer of 88, both of them covered in blood, both of them uh, sitting in the back uh, of uh, the Kurtz's um, car, both of them, each of them, you know, staring out the windows, just just in a complete shock. And that's how it ends. And that sort of systematic switching from from one protagonist to another, where each of these these kind of self-contained stories moving the story along up to this point, focused on on uh, one or uh, a character or another. Here we're switching from one to the other, scene to scene, but we're doing so as we turn the pages. We're switching scenes as we turn the pages. We're switching narration. Holy cow! That is just uh, extraordinarily effective as a, as a comic book, not just as a um, a, as 
sequential images, which I've heard, I think, from Scott McCloud's book, is a good, quick and dirty definition of, of comics. But, you know, I've been reading a few Marvel comics lately on my phone, you know, digital copies, where you can do this whole guided view where it goes from one panel to the next, where you don't get the sense of you're looking one page after the other. The physical object of this particular comic book going from one page to another and the layout of where of what those pages are, you know, in terms of uh, of the contents facing each other, it's extraordinarily well done. It's extremely well crafted, and yeah, I, I I don't know if I would say that this is my favorite issue of all time, but I have rarely read a comic book, a single issue that has been that this satisfying a, a conclusion of everything that has come before it. No, that's a great breakdown, Bubba. Um, I think that's that's fascinating to just kind of take a bird's eye view of that of that narration and how it shifts through this single issue. Um, and then just the other interesting point I think that that came up to me while you were speaking about that is that you know the fact that Leo, who is you know Ricky's best friend, and it's been it's been well documented that. Teague and Ricky have a physical relationship. You know, essentially, Teague beats the hell out of Ricky on a regular basis. I mean, we've seen this time and time again. So, obviously, Leo, as his best friend, would know this. And so, yeah, it's interesting that this is his reaction when he sees these two in this physical altercation, that he elevates it to this level where he grabs the the revolver and, sh- and you know, kills him. Yeah. Um, knowing that, obviously, you know, he, you know, he's broken Ricky's arm. You know, he's obviously he's used to those two having this these physical altercations, but obviously got a sense that this was to another level that he hadn't seen before. And obviously, yeah. their relationship is far from normal for most, you know, father and sons. And it's one, of, and that's yeah. Either from Ricky's perspective, you know, the realization when when his, when his dad reacts that you know the, the this rage is murderous, or or. Leo's reaction, he's seen this, the, this sort of violence from Teague all, 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 you know, for as long as he's known Ricky, but nothing like this. I, again, from the whole understatement thing, you don't need to say it, but I think it would have uh, – I think it, this is one of the few times where I think it would have benefited from – you know, it would not have been overkill to, overst- to, to state it. It would not have been overstating it. I think you can, you can infer an awful lot from the those three panels in a row in the middle of the page where it's um it's leo looking it's it's ricky being strangled and looking back at leo you know an obvious with his eyes crying for help and and then the then ricky's perspective of of teague strangling him to death i think you can infer perfectly infer everything uh, from there but I wonder if there would have been a way to to give it even just a little more oomph particularly be, in a yeah. in an issue with this much going on and no and Teague's Teague has two other I've, deaths already halfway halfway into the issue so Teague has just been this obviously this you know such an integral character to this all of these arcs of criminal that we've gotten over the last 15 years that yeah I do feel like you could have dwelled on that moment even longer and it would have been warranted I mean it wouldn't have 
you know, like I said, this is a moment that's literally we've been building up to since the beginning. So, yeah. um, it, it could have, I think you could have went in that direction and still effectively conveyed that. Yeah. It did almost feel, you know, it, it didn't feel rushed, but it felt like there was more here that we, that as read as longtime readers could have, you know, kind of wanted to see, um, to really for the, for this moment to really hammer home. Yeah. The, those two pages, Almost don't seem to be quite enough. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's a good point. I, I took a quick look. I, you know, I pulled a couple of reviews um, on this issue um, and they were, they were, you know, mostly people were, you know, loved this issue. I did find a couple of, you know, minor complaints about the issue. Um, but here's just a couple that I pulled out. So major spoilers. Um, they loved the issue. They gave it a hundred percent Supreme rating. Um, and here's what they had to say. They said, typically in a miniseries like this, whether it is television or comics, the second to last episode is usually the one where the action happens, while the last episode ties up most of the loose ends in a neat bow. In a compelling inversion of that, Criminal Number 12 is where it all happens, combining action and pathos to make its criminal characters compelling and ultimately broken. Um, Adventures in Poor Taste, they had a few issues with with the issue. They gave it an 8.5 rating. Um, they did compare the the Brubaker and Phillips world to the Cohen brothers world, where they said greed and avarice, bubble and all. Um, but they did have some issues with the large blocks of narrative text, uh, which is interesting that they called that out because there's obviously there's there's large sections of this book without any narration or any text whatsoever. But it does get heavier in certain in certain areas, so it kind of it runs the gamut, I think, with you know the amount of text on a page from from none to to fairly heavy amount of text. Um, and then Newsarama was kind of in the middle. They gave it an 8 out of 10 rating. And here's what they had to say about the issue. They said, Teague, Jane, Ricky, and Faraday all find themselves worse off than when the story started, something which long-term readers of the series will have anticipated when it began. This arc has been a long time coming, and while Bad Weekend marks the high point of the volume, the great strength of this arc is it still makes you wish it could end any other way, even at the end. But it was always on the road to tragedy. So those were just a a cool, kind of a couple, uh, just taking a snapshot of some of the reviews that are out there about the issue. I think one of the reasons that that this series and story arcs like this one connect with readers is that it's not just... Greed, you know, it's it's not just a character like say uh, 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 Parker, you know, um, uh, wanting wanting greed to, to to or wanting wealth to live however he wants to in, in whatever solitude. Um, it's it's also, I think, very deeply about loneliness. That that you know, Teague Lawless widowed. Um, uh, widowed uh, uh, father of uh, of two other troublemakers, he falls in love, and and you know Ricky's tragedy that that he has this opportunity he he basically has this opportunity to get um, his dad's girlfriend out of the way. Yeah, he wants his attention back. Yeah, and and, and he does so in, in a way it's like it and. You know, it this the the plan is obviously a lot more extreme than than most kids would 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 uh, implement, you know, to get rid of a of a potential a potential 
you know, prospective stepmother. Um, but yeah, get her out of the way and yeah, I'll, I'll give you this info, the, the information. I'll tell you how you can get Jane. I'll tell, you know, I'll tell you Faraday. I'll tell the detective how he can get Jane just as long as he promises, uh, not to kill it, kill my dad. And then things will be great between me and my dad again. Yeah. And that's, I would agree with that. I would ag- really sad. <laughs> I would agree with you because it's like, that's the, the, the point I was making earlier is that, um, you know, what broke Teague in the end was not, you know, the heist falling apart or getting arrested or going to prison. It was, it was, hey, I love this woman, Jane, and I watched her die in front of me in a car wreck. And, and you know, the that's what broke him ultimately. So, yeah. you know, I think their their primary motivation or on the their surface motivation is greed, but ultimately that's not where the tragedy lies at all. Yeah, and he, and he lost her because, because of a son who, who wanted – his his attention and affection and his old life back. Yeah. Yeah. It's and that's why it's tragic. Yeah. Yeah, so that's where we're at as, you know, the uh, cruel summer arc comes to a conclusion and this current monthly version of Criminal comes to a conclusion for now. Um until we come back and the the great thing about the uh the Criminal universe, which I know we've touched on many times is that obviously we jump around in time frames. So um, we can see a character's death, and then we can see that character appear in an, in another arc because it's not you know it's not in sequential um, timeline fashion. We jump around all the time, so um, you know whether Teague will will show up again remains to be seen. This we have now seen the death of Teague Lawless, but or young Ricky who also ends up uh, right. uh, dead before the second arc. So yeah. Right. <laughs> so you know it, there's nothing that you know that's and I think that's kind of the genius of how they've set up the criminal universe is that I mean I know there's lots of jokes in the comic book world about obviously no one stays dead um in the superhero world where you know of course everyone is fair game to bring back and to uh but and so they can kind of have it both ways, honestly, in the criminal universe, because we can have a death feel real, and it is real. Yep. Um, but there's no there's no reason that we can't have, you know, a whole other arc that takes place in a different era, and we can see those characters again and kind of see them see that slice of life at whatever whatever era that is that they that the creators choose to present. Well, that pretty much wraps up my notes. I think on issue number twelve. What about you, Bubba? Anything else to add to that before we we shift into recommendations? I think I think that's it. Um, I I'm looking forward, obviously, to Pulp. Looking forward to to whatever comes after that. I think Sean Phillips has confirmed that a month, another monthly book, is on yep. the horizon after that. But I'm very glad to hear that this that this is only the conclusion for now for Criminals. If this was the last issue of Criminal, you know, period. If God forbid, you know, something were 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 to happen to, to Ed or Sean, you know, I, this would be a, a satisfying w- way to end. But I'm, I am really glad that, you know, that that criminal will return. So there's, look. yeah, there's so many stories left in that universe and world to explore that it's, you know, it's not even close to being exhausted, in my opinion. Agreed. Well, yeah, I think we'll take this uh, time to kind of shift into to our recommendations. Um, I will uh, kick things off here. I've got a, a fairly brief recommendation um, that's been hanging around for a while, but I think it's it's worth calling attention to, and I think it's something that our readers would enjoy. 
Um, I know we we kind of dive into music now and again here on the podcast. Obviously, Bubba and I are both big music fans. Um, so when those kind of those worlds intersect, as far as the 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 crime world that that we talk about so much in relation to comics and music, I think it makes for an interesting kind of a conversation point. So. Um, the the recommendation that I'm going to throw out this month is I read an interesting article. Um, again, I think it was published in the summer, last summer. So it's been out for a while, but you can still find it online by the uh, site Crime Reads, um, which Ed Brubaker often recommends um, in his newsletter. But the site is Crime Reads, and they had an article um, focusing on Bob Dylan's best songs about crime. Uh, and it's really a fascinating read, and, and I'm quite familiar with... with uh, Bob Dylan's kind of uh, whole catalog, um, but there were still some nuggets in this in this article that that things that I didn't know that really jumped out at me. So I think it's it's worth a it's worth a read for the casual fan who might just know kind of the the hits, so to speak, from over the decades, or for the people that know the deep cuts from from Dylan's catalog, which is obviously vast. And you know, we're looking at you know fifty uh, fifty plus years at this point of of times he's been putting out music and i think he actually just released a new song a few days ago but um but anyway if you're not familiar with crime reads it's essentially a website about uh recent crime and mystery books um its parent site is literary hub and they started crime reads in march 2018 so it's you know still a relatively new site um and here's the official description of the site crime reads is a single trusted source where readers can find the best writing from the worlds of crime mystery and thrillers a literary culture that's more robust than ever but diffuse. Each day, alongside original content and exclusive excerpts, Crime Reads is proud to showcase an editorial feature from one of its many partners from across the literary crime community, from publishers big and small, bookstores, nonprofits, librarians, and more. Um, and yeah, like I said, thanks to, uh, you know, I'll give my parents a shout out on this front, but Dylan's music has been kind of a mainstay in my life since pretty much day one. And then, uh, you know, I started kind of revisiting his catalog some after the the recent release of of Martin Scorsese's film about Dylan's Rolling Thunder review tour, uh, which was on Netflix last summer as well. So I've been spending a fair amount of time revisiting his discography. Um, so the article kind of hit at a perfect time. But the the article is called "Pistol Shots Ring Out in the Barroom Night: Bob Dylan, Hard Boiled Crime Writer." Uh, and the the article calls out that his catalog is overflowing with lyrical retellings of infamous true life cases, protest anthems aimed at the entire criminal justice system, gothic murder ballads, outlaw folk tales, and rollicking numbers as hard boiled as the most two fisted pulp novel. Um, and the article highlights ten classic Dylan songs steeped in crime and punishment, justice and retribution, theft and bloodshed, and all other manner of mischief and wrongdoing. Uh, and so I'm not going to go through every song. It's a pretty lengthy list, but they, you know, the songs range, like I said, from well-known things like 1964's "Times They Are Changing" uh, to a Traveling Wilburys song from 1988. Uh, and then the the article highlights some some interesting deep cuts of things that I definitely wasn't aware of. There's a song on Dylan's 1985 album called "Empire Burlesque," which is definitely not an album in the Dylan canon that many people go to bat for or that gets gets much attention at all. Um, but the lyrics of the song are apparently made up almost entirely from bits of dialogue from classic film noirs, including Double Indemnity, The Maltese Falcon, The Big Sleep, Key Largo, To Have and Have Not, and Rear Window. And I've definitely listened to Empire Burlesque, but I had not tuned into that aspect of that particular song. Um, 
So yeah, check out the article if you uh, if you are a Dylan fan or kind of interested in diving into his catalog. Um, I think it's a it's a great read and kind of dovetails nicely with uh, your next crime comics reading session. My recommendation it's it's certainly um, a a bloody recommendation. You know, one of, one of the more mature readers comics that sort of thing. I think it's up up our uh, fans alley, uh, particularly the connection to to the. Um, the criminal uh, special edition one-shot, you know, uh, um, Zengar the Barbarian. Um, I'm I'm recommending uh, Marvel's uh, new uh, Conan the Barbarian comic, specifically the first, you know, quite large arc uh, called The Life and Death of Conan. Um, I've last few years I've become a, a bit of a, a, a fan of Robert E. Howard's famous. Uh, barbarian, you know, he was a barbarian. He was a thief, a pirate, a soldier. He worked his way up to being king, and um, or killed his way up to being king. And um, yeah, Dark Horse Comics used to have the license for for Conan and other Robert E. Howard properties, and and they did a an anthology called Robert E. Howard Savage Sword. It had a a, a Oh, short, maybe six, maybe eight page story that John Phillips did in monochromatic, like almost black and white with this, this tinge of blue. It's very, very striking story. But yeah, that that started started uh, the Conan kick for me. And, you know, the, the classic uh, Marvel comics illustrated by uh, Barry Windsor Smith, uh, the original stories have been collected by by Del Rey uh, books in a uh, a uh, three-volume set collected in the the original uh, order, the believed the 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 um, supposed original order that that Howard wrote, you know, the the pulp stories and the novellas and the novel, um, and yeah, uh, Marvel Comics recently got the uh, reacquired the the license uh, for the Marvel books. Beginning of 2019, they 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 released a few books. Um, you know, the, it's. They've even pulled Conan the Barbarian into the um, main Marvel superhero universe, and and uh, didn't think oh, they were going to do it, but they dragged me into the the book. It's called Savage Avengers, which really, you know, a friend of mine at, at the or one of the coworkers at the uh, comic book store, store one, um, a friend of mine mentions that it really ought to. It's it's really misnamed. It's not really a team up team up book as such, at least. So far, it's really, it's really Conan team up. It's it's kind of like the uh, the the Scooby Doo team up book that 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 um, I love reading with the kids, where Scooby Doo teams up with superheroes from the DC universe and Hanna Barbera. In this case, it's it's Conan the Barbarian, you know, Conan of Samaria, teaming up with uh, Wolverine, who introduces himself as Logan of Pabst, Pabst Blue, Re- though it really ought to be Logan of Molson um, if you're gonna be, but. Um, yeah, uh, uh, that's an excellent, that's an excellent point. Yeah. It also brings it back full circle to the, to the beer conversation. To the beer conversation. Yeah. But, um, he teams up with, with, um, Kona, or uh, with, um, Wolverine, with, uh, Venom, uh, with Dr. Doom, Dr. Strange. And it's, it's, it's a fun little ride, but what I, 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 and, I've just pledged to a, a, a Kickstarter campaign, the most recent Kickstarter campaign for a uh, a miniatures game that came out in 2015 and has continued to be supported. 
uh, miniatures-based uh, board game that 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 uses what's called a tactical homeostatic system to, to basically you're, you're you're moving between a resting state and an active state and all sorts of good stuff if you wanted to, to deep dive into the the world of uh, what's called the Hyborian Age, Robert E. Howard's Conan. But what I would recommend. And I think it's a it's a funny thing to recommend for a more of an introductory thing. It's a funny thing to recommend a twelve issue arc, but it's that first arc from uh, Marvel's um, rebooted uh, uh, Conan the Barbarian. That arc it's called the Life and Death of Conan, a twelve issue arc written by uh, Jason Aaron with uh, artwork primarily by I hope I pronounce his name correctly Mahmoud uh, Azrar. Uh, with additional art by Gerardo Zafino and a couple of pages from an artist named Gary Brown. Gerardo Zafino did um, all of issue four, most of issue eight, and he's a fantastic artist. I don't know if he's the quickest artist in the world, but those those two issues were standouts. But really, it's it's um, the the you can get the 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 arc now in trade paperback. Um, book two was released uh, March eighteenth, and it's one of those things I I really hate when a a single arc is split between two trade paperbacks or multiple trade paperbacks, like the the fade out initially was in three arcs, and then you know the single volume. I don't I don't don't think that Watchmen would have had the punch it, it, that um, it did have. Um, if it was released in multiple volumes initially, uh, it was collected in, in, in multiple volumes. Um, I, I certainly think Darwin Cook's uh, DC New Frontier should have been in a single volume from the from the get go. But but this, I would only, uh, actually, you know, it's only been out for a year. I would actually recommend tracking down the single issues. Um, the cover art isn't isn't. The standard cover cover art isn't as as strong as it possibly could be, compared to some of like the Alex Ross covers for for the other book, uh, Savage Sword of Conan, which really should have been a black and white magazine size thing. But you know, we'll, we'll you know they should have focused on that instead of a whole bunch of uh, miniseries. But um, in a, if you go through the the individual the monthly issues, same as with the criminal books. Um, that that criminal has the essays in the back and the beautiful artwork in the back. At least these first twelve issues, and I think only these first twelve issues, they have um, a, a serialized novella in in the back. Um, that uh, yeah, it's uh, called uh, Black Starlight, um, and is a fun little read in addition. But I recommend the monthly issues because these really are monthly episodic things. What what it is is that it's it's a great mix of episodic adventures where it does really cover cover all the territory that that Howard um, introduced for for this character from from the thief to the pirate to the king, um, but it also tells this this larger uh, serialized story. Um, the premise of which I think is makes excellent use of uh, of basically a trope of the character and a trope of comic books. You know, Conan's seeming invincibility, and it's a, and it makes use of it in a way that that really does make sense uh, in in universe. Uh, basically, the premise is you know it's called the life and death of Conan, and it does and 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 on that it it does deliver. Um, but the the premise is, you know, and I, I'm reading 
from the the summary I think from issue two is that um, that in his prime Conan encountered the Crimson Witch and later her child servants, all worshippers of the death god Razazel. The more a great warrior cheats death, the more imbued uh, this god's blood becomes with the power of death magic that the Crimson Witch needs to resurrect her death god. From the hills of Samaria to the kingdom of Aquilonia, Conan traveled, survived, and thrived by cutting a bloody swath through the Hyborian Age. And with the amount of times he's escaped death, he's become his blood has become very powerful indeed. So it's one of those things, you know, is that that it makes use of the fact that that Conan has survived all these the these fantastic adventures by a hair's breadth, and that has made him a target uh, of this. Uh, this evil sorceress, the Crimson Witch, and made him a target of the 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 um, the the d- demon that she's trying to resurrect, and that's just an interesting premise. It's 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 a great hook, and now that the the twelfth issue came out early this year, you know, very early in January, I can say very very confidently that it sticks the landing in a way that um, I think Grant Morrison's Batman R.I.P. did not. Batman R.I.P. did not really deliver, you know, the death of Batman. Didn't really stick the landing. Didn't really um, produce something that was satisfying and that that really was both surprising, but also also um, uh, honoring, you know, the 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 existing universe and the existing character. And this thing does. It's it's. I will say, I think it's a kind of a golden age. For Conan comic books, whether you know you think something like Savage Avengers is a is, is kind of a uh, hook from the superhero universe, um, this other company called Ablaze Publishing has recently uh, reprinted some of the French comic books, uh, the French Conan comic books, and they were going to a few months back, but there was you know copyright issues that sort of thing. But it's it's they're published as the Sumerian Queen of the Black Coast as opposed to Conan the Barbarian. Queen of the Black Coast. He's named Conan on the inside. He's just not mentioned as Conan on the cover, um, and it's it's good stuff. They they they've been advertising it as you know the the uh, Robert E. Howard Savage Hero uncensored. You know a, a, an authentic adaptation of the original stories, and they're they're good adaptations. They're not perfect, but they're a good worthwhile alternative view. I think it really is, you know. A, a kind of a golden age for Conan the Barbarian comic books right now. It's it's, um, or at least a silver age compared to, to the classic stuff. Um, but if you're not a Conan fan, and you're at all interested, I I think you could do worse. You could do a lot worse than than tackling those twelve issues. And, and at the end of the day, it's like it, it, it's it, you either want to spend years and years with the guy, or it's like, all right, I get it. I, I get the appeal. Those twelve issues: the life and death of Conan, uh, and the the that sort of episodic but serialized story delivers on both ends. Deliver d- delivers completely. So that would be my recommendation: the life of death, the life and death of Conan, um, uh, written by Jason Aaron. Uh, found in the monthly issues, issues one through twelve of Marvel's new Conan the Barbarian series. And yeah, I think we will we'll wrap it up here. I think this has been a, a great conversation. We appreciate all of you tuning in to kind of hear our our breakdown of Criminal Number Twelve. 
um, as we enter these few months between the end of Criminal and uh, the the Brubaker and Phillips team's next released work, which will be Pulp in May. Um, so, yeah, we look forward to to that and the subsequent series once that's announced. And, of course, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll hopefully be here to, to uh, bring you our breakdown, and we do appreciate you giving a listen. And, uh, yeah, reach out. Let us know what you like about the episode. Um, as always, you can find our episodes on undertow.podbean.com or on iTunes, or you can send us an email, undertowpodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach us on Twitter at undertowpodcast. And uh, I think with that, we will sign off. And, uh, yeah, great talk tonight, Bubba. Appreciate it. Yeah, it was, it was fun. Yeah, I, I hope to be back in the undertow uh, again real soon, hopefully before uh, Pulp comes out, whether, you know, it's delayed by the quarantine or not. We still have lots of other things to talk about. I'm sure we'll be back soon, um, though how soon is, is obviously uh, to be determined. As everything, as pretty much everything is at this point, we'll just go with to be determined. Um, that's kind of the that's where we're at right now, but but that's okay. We're managing, and uh, yeah, we're happy to bring you. Um, what is this? I think this is episode number thirty-seven. Seven, which you know that's that's an impressive number in my book. So uh, thirty-seven. That sounds uh, that sounds pretty good. So um, we do appreciate everyone listening, and uh, we look forward to seeing you on down the road. Thanks, folks. <laughs>